Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. listening to Metal Up, your podcast with your host, Clint Wells. All things Metallica. Hey, this is Jay Weinberg from Slipknot. This is Chad Z, roadie for Metallica. Mick Wool. Michael Wagner. Jimmy Clark. Lars Ulrich, drum tech. This is Johnny Z. This is Joe from Bukasa. Adam Dubin, director of Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. Hey, this is Rob Dietrich, master distiller for Black and American Whiskey. Hey, everybody, I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. We're from the band Hailstorm. This is Ray Burton, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Episode 374, what's up, babies? Welcome to Metal Free Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Wells. Back with part two of my interview with my friend Jamila, Music and We Podcast. You can find the links for all of that stuff down below. Uh, we're going to get right into it here real quick. Busy week. A lot going on. Basketball's back on after the All-Star break. Maverick's looking good. Excited about that. Uh, Sony is wanting to put out a deluxe version of this new Morgan Wade record. So I'm going back in the studio this week to cut a few more songs. And I've been producing a Red Dirt uh, country radio program out in Texas. So I've got a lot going on. Busy times. About to hop on a plane to go to Phoenix to see my friend David J. Matthews. About to go to Hawaii. About to go to Australia. So fun times. I wanted to finish this uh, interview. Great conversation with my buddy Jamila. Got a lot of good feedback from the last one. This one, we talk a lot more about Metallica. Uh, getting into podcasting, what it's like to build a podcast community, why I do a Metallica podcast, you know, songs that I'm drawn to, the sort of load-reload affinity that I have. We talk a lot about Lulu and St. Anger and me sort of getting on the Lou Reed train, understanding challenging records your favorite bands make, and then there's some cool stuff about some of the music that I've written and records I've put out there at the end. So I hope you dig it. And uh, without further ado, here's part two of our conversation. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. So now here's the part where we do talk about Metallica. Hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> so you have a podcast. It's mm -hmm. called Metal Up Your Podcast. Mm -hmm. So before we even get into the as they say meat and potatoes i'm vegan but whatever of metallica what draws you to podcasting oh man i don't know if i'm even drawn to it i had to be convinced to do it at first and then we did it and it it, it worked you know like there was people who liked to listen to it and then suddenly we had a, a community of people that i enjoyed being around and talking with so i don't know if i'm drawn to it i feel like i'm good at it and that makes it fun to do, you know, like, I think I'm drawn to it because it it, can, it comes easy, you know, and I feel like I'm decent at it. So that makes it fun. But I ordinarily, believe it or not, Jamila, I ordinarily would not be as vain as to imagine people listening to me talk every week. I really, it's not something I, 
now get on stage and be the guitar player that kind of because I was never a front man, so the front man's going to front man. Now I'll step out and play a solo. Okay, I'm good for that. I got my 16 bars. Bing, bing, bing. But then I'm going to walk back and let the front man do his thing. I'm very, very comfortable with not being the, the front guy. So the fact that it's turned into seven years of, of an audience listening to me pontificate endlessly is a little nauseating. And yet somehow I've <laughs> overcome it and find a way to keep doing it because I like it. I mean, I, I like really the thing I like the most about it. And this isn't bullshit is like meeting people like you, all the friends that I've made through it. I like that more than just talking. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about community, the community that's built during a podcast such as yours. What are elements that create and encourage the community? And what are elements you've seen that sort of discourage community? Man, I think I think it worked at first because Ethan and I were just we had chemistry. We're buddies and we were a little goofy and we weren't trying to be better or smarter than anybody. So we would occasionally get get corrected about shit or, or we'd be crunching ice or we'd be too drunk. You know, the early days, we didn't know what we were doing, you know. But I think I think the the vibe we always gave off and that I feel like I still give off and especially if you've met me in person is, look, we could be having a beer and just this is what I'm like. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. I like to find juice. You know, I'll get punched up or have some hot takes. But ultimately, I'm pretty friendly and uh, and I'm interested in people. And I'm scared of people, <laughs> but I know that that's bad for me. So I, I try to become interested. And uh, I think that comes through the podcast. The podcast is really about more than Metallica. I, even Stefan, we were talking about it. He was talking about why he thinks Metal Podcast is special, which I mm-hmm. thought was really cool and really flattering. And he was basically saying it's really not about Metallica. Um, it's about it's c- kind of a culture vulture podcast that's really about it's really about what a band like Metallica does to people. You know, but you know, we're all because that's really what we're bonded by, too. I I mean, I think that if you have like the stew of Ethan and I had chemistry, we're not trying to be braggadocious, you know, know it alls, which that's that's a bummer. Well, that was one of the things that I remember you saying, possibly from the first episode or one of the earliest episodes is we know more than you and we know less than you, something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing that we do know a lot about, which does make us unique, is we know a lot about the music industry. And so that's just another angle that I think makes it compelling. Like that's what I would want to hear someone talk about. And then I've heard other music industry podcasts where the people are kind of shit, know it all shitheads about that too. I just don't think we ever did that. Um, yeah. And maybe it's because we're not huge stars. I mean, we're just sort of blue, normal blue collar. Um, you know, we're not getting rich in the roles that we've been in. We're, we just work hard and we're on the road, but we do cool things. You might see us on TV occasionally. A song I wrote might be on a television. You know, we're doing shit, but we're not we're not Taylor Swift. You know, so I don't know. It's it's mysterious to me, honestly. Some of it. I think the thing that makes it bad is when hosts, you know, get detached from reality or they get big heads or it's really the know it all shit that that I think really kind of damage a community because. And maybe I've been guilty of it too. I don't know. But I, it's something I think about because we're all just trying to have conversations. And it's okay to be wrong about it. You know, it's okay to have an opinion that's a little, that you're working through. I think something that we've kind of lost in discourse in the current mm-hmm. climate is like, it's okay to just work through something out loud because right. now it's just trial by. Now, not only do you have to have the right answer in real time, 
they're going to comb through what you said 10 years ago when you were 10 years dumber or 20 <laughs> years ago when you were a kid, which, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I'm not saying that anything you did or said 20 years ago is, is off the table, but man, like things have context and I, I don't rush to make big pronouncements, you know, and podcasting generation is so interesting because you're just working out problems with an audience. That's not normal. I come from a very talky place, you know, because I grew up in a very limited experience, very rural, poor Alabama stuff. So I just had the TV on, you know, and I had my CD book, my little case logic. That, and those were the only doorways into other worlds for me. And I had a bunch of friends going through the same thing. And most of my friends from that time got out of all that and are doing things all over the world. So we were a very talky group, you know, just seeing object racism every day in school. We were going home and talking about that, kissing a girl for the first time or all the things that you do when you're kids, you know, just talking about it and maybe having some not great takes about it. Like, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's like if there was a document of me trying to work out how I felt about, you know, my girlfriends at 14, it's like, I don't know if I had the right answer at 14. I was 14. And I think that even applies to in your mid 20s, you know, it's like, do you feel like you've grown a lot since your mid 20s? Absolutely. And one of the things Muhammad Ali said, and of course, I'm going to paraphrase here. If you're the same person you are now that you were 20 years ago, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, totally. And so there is a lot to context. No one's perfect. But I think when critique actually works, how people do accountability is a lot more reactionary than it needs to be. But I think because we are in a society that is individualistic and we did live in a time where, you know, people did tell particular jokes or had music or did a lot of things that, you know, in this day and age are not seen as favorable. But I think what is missing is the context in that some people do grow, mm -hmm. but there are people who haven't grown. And that's really, I think, where the critique is important. So, you know, somebody may have made a racist comment or a sexist comment 20 years ago, but they did a lot of internal work, which is one of the reasons I love St. Anger, <laughs> but doing a lot of the internal work to become a better human. And I think that is, to your point, what is missing in the conversation. So when someone sees a social media post from 15 years ago and not accounting to whatever growth that person has had, yeah, then we go on this uh, different trajectory. So I, I do agree with you in a lot of ways. Like there's no opportunity to allow for growth because we're not a society that encourages growth. We have to find growth on our own or find communities that do that growth. But, you know, a lot a lot of it, we're, a lot of us were latchkey kids. Like we just were so isolated. And so I think social media it inhibits a lot of our growth if we stay on it all day and we just have echo chambers and we don't interact with different types of people with different views. Yeah. And I, I don't think that, you know, if we are uh, staunch in whatever view we have, that doesn't mean that we just stay with people who think like us because we're not even able to grow our analysis on whatever we're staunch with if we don't encounter different people and have struggles. 
So I think these struggles are very important in order to flower our own analysis, to flower our own growth as people. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's got to be a path back. And I just, I just think it comes into the human psychology stuff, too. It's just juicier to hate on shit. It, people don't want to forgive. <laughs> forgive. Forgiveness is complicated. Yes, it is. And giving people second chances is complicated. And and I think, too, another slice of the pie, I don't know how big it is, but it's some sliver of the pie, is really on the offended person, too. It's like, look, you're offended. You know, they did something offensive. Okay, you know, before we all had a megaphone to be bummed about it, you would just move on. You would just have to decide, well, is that enough for me to be done with this person or this corporation? <laughs> or it's not, you know, that's kind of gotten a little weird, too. So I don't know. You know, I, I like talking to people that aren't like me, and I, I work a lot in country music. And so a lot of country music fans kind of share different priorities, you know, about issues that matter to us. But I'm often, you know, in rooms of these people. And, and now I live in a part of Nashville that is mostly people that aren't like me politically and socially, ideologically. And man, that's been really good for us. And I'm not saying people who are doing violence. I'm, you know, I don't know a lot of people who are doing. I'm, I'm not saying there's not violence, but a lot of my neighbors aren't committing violence. They believe right. they have some good and bad beliefs. They have some good and bad heroes. Um, mm -hmm. But what we really want is the same things, just to be happy and have our kids be safe and have a good time and see good movies and listen to great music. And and we're all going to die. <laughs> I mean, the game is the same for all of us. And so uh, you got to rise above some of the things that keep us tribal. And you're like, oh, man, we're kind of similar, you know. And I do think that accountability is important, too. I think I think the lack of social media provided a lot of cover for people where they weren't held yeah. accountable. And so that's. You know, that's definitely an argument, you know, against the whole it was better days. You know, the, that's the, a great point. The great me, point. The Me Too movement, I think, did have collateral damage. But what I do think it did, I think it was mostly positive. And I think it mostly was a zeitgeist change in, in the entertainment industry about what's for, going to be acceptable in the future with how to treat women. And I think the pendulum swung hard as, as it usually does. And I think some people got caught up in that you know, in that shit storm that maybe didn't deserve to be there. I don't really know where to put that myself, you know, but that was a good thing because it brought out a lot of shit that's been hiding in the dark that was for too long kind of excused or ignored. Now it can't be. So, right. And those things are going to get, all of this shit's going to get reevaluated, you know, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You just try to make sure you're doing your best to be informed, be on the right side of it and not do anything that's going to embarrass you later or embarrass your children. That's that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah. Starting a podcast, it could have been about anything because you talked earlier about listening to people who work in the industry being songwriters. You could have done that kind of podcast. You could have done a podcast about you too, some of your favorite bands, Dave Matthews, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan. You could have done any of that. 
but you started a podcast with Metallica as the primary theme. Mm -hmm. What is so compelling to you about Metallica to do a podcast, to start a podcast, and to still be doing a podcast about Metallica? Well, it could have been any of those other things. I feel equally passionate about U2 and Dave Matthews. A bunch of bands are going to annoy people that love Metallica. But uh, I was just talked into it, you know? And I... I think you're like this too. Like I'm a little bit encyclopedic about the bands that I love. So when I was convinced to do it, it wasn't like, well, all right, well, give me six months to read up. It was like, I could do it. You know, I could sit down and really do it. Now I've got things wrong and there were things that I have discovered doing the podcast. There were little eras that I didn't know as well and blah, 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 blah. But in terms of like passion, like literally passionate, dedicated, I have sincerely been obsessed with this band since I was like 12. I'm ready to rock. I can talk about it. So that was a starting point. It was like, well, I have something to say about it. I know my shit well enough to start it. But I could have done that with any of those bands. I mean, I could do that with Pink Floyd tomorrow. Now I would go through the same ups and downs. You know, there's the Sid Barrett era. I would have to probably have a co-host who knew more of that stuff. I'm kind of more of a metal through Final Cut guy. And I can definitely talk Division Bell and a momentary laugh, like the post-Waters stuff. But I don't know Roger Waters' solo shit. Like, so there's there's pockets where I might not be the most authoritative, but I w- would confidently sit down at a microphone tomorrow and start Pods on a Wing podcast or whatever I would call it, you know? <laughs> and I really Adam Hart Adam Hart podcast exactly Adam. something like that. <laughs> I keep doing it because they keep they keep doing compelling work. You know, they keep doing interesting things. They keep keep putting out good records and going on massive world tours and breaking records. And they keep being interesting as human beings. I mean, no band that long is still together. You know, it's just very rare company. Lars was talking about it. He was like, you're going to have to, he was like, what are the other bands? You know, he talks about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, a band that's had a hit in four, four decades. So they've had hits, you know, I keep doing it just because it's it's grown bigger than the band, and I yes. don't know. I, I feel responsible for it in a good way. I, I don't want to let anyone down, and I know that my favorite podcasts, I look forward to them, and I need them, and they're a really important source of structure in my life, and I feel that, about, I feel that way about doing it. It's important for me to keep doing it, but I also feel responsible for the people who I know love the show and look forward to the show. Mm. And we're getting rich doing it. Duh. <laughs> Are you sitting in your mansion right now? <laughs> exactly. I got to go. Get, I'm, I'm having my yacht gassed up right now. And you're in the hot tub right now. Your second hot tub. I'm in a hot tub on a private jet. Yeah. Exactly. Fortune, babe. Mirror, vein, Don't insane. But the memo. got into Metallica over 30 years ago. I was 14 years old. They were my favorite band. But it wasn't until it's going to be three years. Up to that point was when my love for the band increased. And my love for the band actually was rekindled after this accident. 
And one was the one song in my head, even though I was listening to it on repeat shortly before the accident. That was one of the songs that really saved my life when I was sitting in the hospital. And I ended up connecting with the band in stronger ways when I got out of the hospital. So what songs hold this special place for you of Metallica is that when you fall into these undesirable emotional spaces? No, first song that comes to mind when you talk about like what would be, I mean, I haven't experienced anything like what you went through, so I'm not making light of that. But when I think about, mm. okay, like a dark, a dark night of the soul type feeling for me, the first song that comes to mind without any real thought is The Unforgiven 2. Mm. And I don't know why. I mean, it's a dark song. It's It's got very poetic language. It seems to be about guilt over a relationship gone bad. It's like he kills the chick or something. And it, that's all nebulous and doesn't even really matter. It's really more about, I remember when I was, that would have been ninth grade for me. And my mom had gotten divorced we had a fairly normal suburban life, like, you know, a three-bedroom house, and my sister had her own room. My brother had his own room. We were in the suburbs, and my parents got divorced, and we moved in with my grandmother, who was a, a wonderful woman, uh, but a very small little garden home in Alabama. And my sister and my mom and my little brother shared a room. They gave me my own room because I was a 14-year-old boy, and uh, <laughs> I don't really know why they did that, actually. Um but our lives just changed. Our life changed big time. And it was a shock. It was just it was just a, a weird time. You know, it was just like family fell on hard times. And just for whatever reason, that was that C D that was in my disc man every day. And I felt, you know, I was an angsty fourteen year old and probably had a girlfriend that broke up. Who knows? You know, I can't even remember. I just remember I felt sort of lonely and friendless. And that CD, as dumb as it sounds, felt like my friends. Those little songs were like my friends. That's one of the reasons I have such an affinity for that album, particularly. You know, So one of the reasons that I will always defend Slither and Better Than You and yes. Carpe Diem Baby and, and uh, you know all the cool deep cuts on that album. Fixer, of course, was a big... I have to tell you, there's so many great moments on Metal Up Your Podcast. Well, my... My favorite moment of all time. I was there at the 40th. I was there live when it happened. But then I went to listen to the episode and Fixer came on. And y'all were in the middle of talking about ACDC, I think. <laughs> and then you hear the tape. And you go, oh my God, that's Fixer. Yeah. That's Fixer. Wait, wait, that's Fixer. <laughs> so I just had to say that. Okay, go <laughs> I know that was such a fun moment because I, we I really didn't have any inside information about that. I was just sort of letting it all burn down. But I think the reason that that song, like that time of my life, is such a uh, it was just such a low point. And it's, it feels silly to say that fourteen years I didn't know shit. I was just a kid. Like you know, Nova will sometimes come home and be like, her like best friend's this kid named Rhett in the neighborhood, and like most nine ten year olds, he's awesome, but then he can be a little boy. He can be mean. Some you know what I mean? Like they're kids. And she'll be like, this is the worst day of my life. And she's being serious. I'm like, well, what's going on? She's like, Rhett is being bossy about the trampoline. You know, it's like, it's the worst day of her life because Rhett, she really likes Rhett. I think she even loves Rhett, like the way that kids love each other. So when yeah. Rhett's dismissive or bossy, it really hurts her. Like she'll come in crying. It really hurts her feeling. It's a big feeling for her. But part of my job as a older, wiser dad is I'm like, you're gonna be all right. 
yeah, you're going to be fine. Don't if, if that's the wor- this is the worst day of your life. You've had a good life, babe, you know. Uh, but it was a low point in my life at that point. And so I don't know that record we should say. And I was listening to all sorts of stuff. It's not like that was the only record, you know. Uh, and I, I loved Ride the Lightning. Ride the Lightning was my shit. Like I could I could go toe to toe with all the OG real shit. If anyone wanted to argue about it, even in 1997, I was ready to argue. Like, I'll talk about Trapped Under Ice all you want, bud. But Unforgiven 2 really comes to mind. Really, those two, the two records, Un- Until It Sleeps, Unforgiven 2, the more moody stuff. Yeah. I really loved Carpe Diem Baby. Uh, yeah, but like the Bleeding Me's, you know, the Outlaw Torns. Those were just hitting me at that time. I think that's what it is. It's just I was going through a rough time and those records made me feel better. And then when things got better, which they, of course, did, and my whole life has been, I've had a nice life, you know, I have a lot to be grateful for. You just never forget how these certain pockets of songs or bands got you through something. And they just, they'll live forever in a really special place in you when they've done that for you. And that that's what Metallica, Metallica is part of that. There's a chapter in my life called Metallica, for sure. No doubt. And this is even before the podcast. Now I'm seven years into this podcast. I mean, it's it's a long chapter now. But it, but yeah. before anyone had ever heard of me, I'm telling you, when I, you know, I was 18 years old in Alabama, there was already going to be a chapter called Metallica. And it, it was going to heavily feature Load and Reload already. And that was 22 years ago. Your love for Load and Reload, I would say, is pretty similar from my love to St. Anger. And I would say Lulu as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think all four of those albums in some capacity, Load, Reload, Lulu, St. Anger, have been hated by the community to varying degrees. (laughs) And I feel like Load is starting to get a little more respect. And there's a box set coming out and everything. But over time, all four of those albums have been disrespected, hated, unfairly critiqued, etc. Nothing's immune from critique, but I feel like the critiques have been unfair on all four of those albums. But do you feel, I know that you're not as into Lulu and St. Anger, but do you feel those albums hold a special place in the catalog? Hmm. I mean, they're special, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I think St. Anger is closer because uh, the material is very... The material is not mysterious. You know, if anything, it's this, it's being hit over the head really bluntly, you know, like <laughs> love is control. And, you know, it's very, it's very clear what they're working through. It's visceral and it's pummeling. And it's that's a record that also we're 20 years later on and 20 years. It's kind of a 20 year cycle thing. People tend to reevaluate things a little more fondly because before you know it, two decades are gone. And the shit that you were bummed about is now nostalgia. And mm-hmm. you're maybe you're maybe remembering <laughs> you're maybe longing for 20 years back and you're like, you know what? I wish I would appreciated that a little more because I wish I was 20 years younger or whatever. Or my parents were still alive then or or I, I was living in a city I loved or whatever. Like everyone connects these things with personal things that are happening to them that have nothing to do with the music. 
That's another thing that I think is hard to remember when you're having fun kind of debating it is everyone's really connected a lot of this material to things that have nothing to do with the music part. So if you're on a forum and you're having fun or if I'm speaking into a microphone to thousands of people, I can't quantify all of that in one hour. So invariably, people are going to feel lost in the mix and offended or or deeply resonate or he's talking about my life, you know. So I think St. Anger is that, you know, St. Anger is going to, I mean, it's probably the most talked about Metallica album. If you, if you look at their whole history, it's just the most kind of debated and it's one of the most challenging, and I mean that in a good way, artistic statements ever by a mainstream band that the world knows. I mean, a lot of bands that no one's ever heard of are making really challenging music in a basement somewhere great but of bands that are like household global you know names that have changed the world that are like zeitgeist moving parts of culture that's a struggle i mean i i don't know a band that big that's made a record like that i just don't yeah. know you know and then cue everyone writing in their favorite underground steampunk appellation folk band that only uses hammers and pipes or whatever the fuck. I mean, I get it, you know. Lulu is interesting. Lulu's interesting in a t- an entirely different way because it's... And I never really understood Lou Reed until after I did that that episode and people were like, dude, you need to check out Lou Reed. And like, I've listened to Transformer in Berlin hundreds of times now and it's only been a couple of years. I really understand him more and I, I understand the project more. It's still hard to listen to for me but that's just me. I mean, I really ultimately like really palatable, digestible music. I, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll listen to those artists do challenging things. Like U2 had a middle period that was very challenging. Metallica's got St. Anger that's very challenging. A lot of bands make challenging records if they're good. Yeah. Like there's not a challenging ACDC record. And I love ACDC. <laughs> but there's not a record of ACDC where you're like, man, I'm wrestling with some of the themes here, you know? Radiohead made Kid A and Amnesiac very challenging mm-hmm. records that mm-hmm. at the time I really didn't get. Now they're some of my favorite. My favorite bands do that. You actually reminded me of this song, what Lou Reed does. And this is going to our earlier conversation. Lou Reed does this song called I Want to Be Black. And this is one of the problems I have with the internet age because there's a lot of songs that were satirical and they're very clearly satirical, but in this day and age, people read things so literally that people are like, oh, Lou Reed, he would be canceled. But yes, if it was a literal song, yes. <laughs> right. But you could hear the sarcasm dripping from how he read the song. And that was Lou Reed. Yeah. And yeah, he made metal machine music. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like he, he just made really transgressive music and art. And if yeah. you kind of looked into him at all, you're like, dude, he was on a different plane. He, he did not care about people's skin color. You know, he dated a, a, a <laughs> trans woman. It's like that dude did not mm-hmm. care about normal conventions of society. And he was <laughs> toying with a lot of it, you know, like he really was making like kind of higher art concept type art. Which is fascinating to me, you know, like there's room in my world for it. But, you know, of, I, of course, am drawn to his more commercial records. Right. Transformer in Berlin kind of represent his most like mainstream, you know, take a walk on the wild side and satellite of love. 
that song Perfect Day blew me away. I could not believe that he wrote that song. I, I played it I, I played it for my wife recently because I heard it in a movie. Mm. It was in a horror movie, but it was a Duran Duran cover. Oh, wow. And I didn't know. And I Shazammed it. And I was like, holy shit, Duran Duran? And then uh, we did the Lulu episode and someone, I think you and Carl particularly were like, you should check out Lou Reed. <laughs> right. You were like, it's not all the machine, bone machine music or whatever, metal machine music, noise shit. And I remember getting Transformer because I recognized Satellite of Love, which is a song you too used to cover uh, during the okay. during the Zoo TV stuff. And I saw Perfect Day, and I was like, "Oh, you know, there's a lot of songs called Perfect Day." Guster has a song called. There's a lot of songs called Perfect Day. And then it came on, and I was like, "Holy shit!" And I was I remember telling my wife, I was like, "Surely someone co-wrote this. Like, surely this is like a Randy Newman song that Lou Reed co-wrote or, or covered." And I looked it up, and it's like, no, he wrote. He sat down at a piano and wrote this song. I remember I told my wife, I said, he gets a pass now for everything he did. Because if you can write a song that good and you know what it takes to, if you can do that, then you know what's going on. Now, he might have been so talented and so interesting that he's bored by just writing great. I'm like, dude, just write 10 of those for every album. But that's not the trip he was on. He was He was on a high level, you know? He was... He was doing shit I don't really understand. And it's almost like writing Perfect Day for him is boring. When I heard Perfect Day, I thought maybe one day in my whole life, I'll be lucky enough to write a song this good. And he's like, yeah, I mean, that's just a song I wrote. In fact, that song's not weird enough for him. He was bored by it. It's too conventional. It's got a verse and a chorus and then another verse and then a chorus and then this great outro. And it's nice to listen to. And he's like, boring. It's like, come on, James. I know. So I understand Lulu more, and there's a place for it. Like everything that they said about it's true. It kind of sounds like they're dodging it because it was not commercially well received. Where they're like, you know, it was a Lou project, and we're not going to say no to Lou Reed. And that all sounds kind of bullshitty until you until I kind of got more context for Lou and was like, oh no, yeah, like yeah, if Lou Reed calls you, you make the album that he wants to make, and you. And, you know, I love Metallica because they really do always try their best. I don't think they always knock it out of the park. But, man, they, they're passionate, you know? Like, they get in there and really are passionate. Now, sometimes Kirk loses his phone or sometimes James has to go on a six-month, you know. They've got things that come into their lives because they're human beings. But I like their their commitment and their passion. And you hear that in Lulu. You really do. You you. I try not to do the thing where I'm like, well, it's got good riffs. Uh, yeah, I, I, I try not to separate it all out. I try to just take it like for what it is. And for what it is, I mean, it's intense, but it's full on. And I can respect it for sure. Getting to load for a second, I know you've been talking a lot about the riffs and the ways you connect with the music in that way. For me, I'm primarily a lyrics person. I'm a writer. So that's one of the first things I look at. And to me, load 
in particular has some of James Hetfield's greatest writing. Yeah. And I just connect with it in so many ways. I think musically, yeah, the riffs are amazing. I love that they went to blues scales. I, I love that they went there. But musically, I feel like Lode walked so St. Anger could run and St. Anger ran so 72 seasons could soar. Hmm. I feel like they are three chapters in a particular book. And it's just, they're very vulnerable albums. Reload to a lesser degree. I mean, you have Fixer. But I just feel like there are particular periods. I don't think people necessarily acknowledge that. I think there is so much of a focus on the solos and the riffs. I don't think James Hetfield really gets enough credit for songwriting. And I do happen to appreciate that the songwriting aspect was, uh, was a lot more democratic in St. Anger. I get why people wouldn't like that because James Hetfield is such an amazing songwriter. But I feel like they had to go through that in order to go through this particular aspect of their lives. And then we have 72 Seasons, which I think is just what happened within the 20 years between now and St. Anger and the maturity and the ability to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And it's got some great riffs. But I, I just think that, you know, when people focus on, well, it's not this or it's not that, or, you know, Kirk's solos aren't this or, or Lars is playing in this way, it doesn't allow for their humanity. So I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, you kind of, at some point, you just have to take it for what it is and quit. I, I think a lot of people were perplexed by it and challenged by it. So they're just trying to understand, like, well, why, what's going on? You know, so then you start, you start pulling apart things like, well, there are no solos. Okay. Um, they're tuned down. The snare's off. He let everyone write, you know, you just start trying to understand it, which I think is helpful. But I think when it just becomes a, a litany of what's different, yeah, you, you, you're losing what it is and you should just, I think, and, and you know, it's an album. You can listen to it a million times and you can listen to it in a certain mood or on a certain day or you can revisit it and feel differently about it. And I think sometimes you listen to, I listen to it analytically sometimes where I'm like, man, if they just trim this or don't, you know, shorten this. But I do think it's good too for someone like me to just listen to it sometimes and just take it as a piece of work. Like you said, it's like their humanity. That's what they're going. And that's what they say when they explain it. And it, it's true. They're like, well, we, we get, we did the best we could. That's where we were. And these are the songs we wrote for that time. And, Someone out there resonates, you know, they always kind of make room and say it's someone's favorite album, you know, they're always talking about you probably. And now, <laughs> yeah. now it's at a place where even people like me are longing to see that material live. Like, I'd almost rather see Dirty Window than like Wherever May Roam or something, you know? Mm. So, yeah. And, you know, the thing about it's hard for me to correlate it with the load and reload stuff because during that time, they were just all over MTV. It just didn't, I didn't have a lot of older people in my life that were like super butthurt. You know what I mean? Like all my friends and I really liked it. My friends didn't really start jumping off until I disappear. For some reason, that really bugged some of my friends, that song. And then, of course, St. Anger was tough for all of, all of us at that time, at that age. But when Load and Reload were out, I mean, dude, Fuel and Memory Remains were on MTV like every 90 seconds. You know, the Mother Load thing was this big MTV thing. Until It Sleeps was all over MTV. King Nothing, Hero of the Day, Cunning Stunts came out. We were jamming the 
Mexico City. You know, we were jamming binge. Like the '90s was like my time. Which everyone's heard me say it a million times. But all that to mean, like, I felt like culturally they were also very powerful. So it didn't seem like uh, I just wasn't really privy. I wasn't on the internet, you know. Whereas Saint Anger was internet age, a lot more divisive. I think more challenging than the load reload stuff sonically and more people kind of scratching their heads and arguing about it. It wasn't until later that I realized so many people were upset about load and reload because mm-hmm. all, all my friends liked, we liked kill them all and we liked load. Right. We're just a bunch of Al- Alabama kids learning to play guitar. We, it was just very uncomplicated for us. It's like, dude, seek and destroy rips. We're going to play seek and destroy. Then we're going to play, uh, you know, ain't my bitch. Right. Well, I'm one of those people who did come to Gnome and Talk. I was introduced to them through Kill 'em All, Master of Puppets, you No know, Life Till Leather, and then heard the Black Album. Like, it wasn't for me, oh, they sold out or whatever, even though my introduction to them was actually their first stuff. And then Load came out. I was like, oh, Kirk and Lars. You know, like, I didn't have that struggle either. So it is interesting how people view Metallica in their own lives and whether or not they feel they sold out. I I didn't feel that way either. I'm with you on that. Well, and two, I think what I would want to say to those people is like, dude, it's okay if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem for me is trying to make sense of not liking it for bad reasons. Like, it's okay to just be like, the sounds going into my ear holes and into my brain aren't pleasant. Right. Instead of it being more about like, I don't like the way they look or they cut their hair or they're not playing fast or they're not on my team anymore or they're not wearing bullet belt. Like those are just such bad reasons to re- to reject a piece of art. And, you know, I'm not the arbiter of all that. I'm not going to I don't really care. I'm not going to I don't even argue with people anymore about it. I'm like, I don't give a shit if you don't like a band or a song or an album, but. I do think there are good and bad reasons to reject things. And I think it's perfectly valid to be like, I I mean, I checked it out. It just didn't speak to me. Maybe it will right. later, you know? You are a person who has released music. You have EPs, you have albums, you have Vampire, you have Going Supernova, you have the Great White Light EP, and then you have your project Lunar Satan. What are some liberatory aspects in terms of writing, recording, and producing your own music as opposed to with someone else? And on the other side, are there any struggles that you've encountered doing this? Well, I write so many songs for other people because I, I love writing. You know, we talked about it earlier. I feel like I'm good at it. When I sit down to write a song, a song usually will happen. It may not be one of my favorites, but I'm a high volume writer. I have some friends that only write 10 songs, you know, every year or two. And those are the 10 songs that are going to be on their album. And they spend a lot of time on those 10 songs. I tend to write songs very fast. I honor what they are. They get birthed. Maybe you can tweak a few things, but they mostly are fully formed. And then they either can fly away from the nest or they 
or they can't. <laughs> yes, they, I write in the same way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Either they can get their own food and survive or they can't. And uh, I kind of look at songs like that. Uh, I'm not really precious about it, honestly. You know, there are bands that I've written for that I don't listen to their records or I've written songs that I wouldn't put on because I, I think writing is a craft and I think that some of the best songs are songs written from personal experience and imbued with like real tactile imagery that you've lived. And there's something, you know, Chris Stapleton is going to be a guy that writes songs about his life and they're going to resonate. That's what he does, you know. But Ricky Martin, who is also worth, I don't know, 20,000 tickets in any arena in the world. Who gives a shit if that's real to him? I mean, no one cares. You know what I mean? And that's valid. Like, I would love to have written Live in La Vida Loca. In fact, Desmond Child, who wrote Live in La Vida Loca, also wrote some of my favorite Kiss songs and Bon Jovi songs. And and a guy like Desmond Child or Carol King or Diane Warren, I love these great songwriters behind the scenes who were able to get with an artist, understand what an artist is all about, and help them write a song that was going to open up their world, you know? I very much appreciate that. But it is a different kind of world. But, but so I do that all the time. I'm, I'm, and I have a lot of empathy. You know, like I was born with a lot of empathy for whatever reason. So it's easy for me to get inside of it and try to just do my best to help someone have a voice. It's one of the things I, I, uh, when I'm writing in my studio, trying to make a record with somebody. If they know who they are as an artist, that's the easiest and the best. They just need help with lyrics. Need help with connecting a bridge to a chorus. Oh, what if we did this for the solo? And then I can, of course, play the solo and I can I can harmonically make sense of it and get an artist to a place where they can share the best version of that song with their fans. You know, I fucking love that stuff. But for me, my records are just the stuff I want to write, which tends to be sadder, kind of forlorn, stranger stuff. My lyrics aren't a lot of country writing is like, these two people met here, then they went to this place, then this happened. And then you'll do a big picture chorus thing, right? Like surviving the rain clouds because blue skies are going to come one day. And then verse two is these two people who we've already introduced who did A, B, and C, they're having this conflict. And then you hit the big picture, big chorus guy again, you know? Never mind the rain, we'll see blue skies again. Okay, then you, then there's a guitar solo, then there's sort of a big picture bridge. There's like formulas that work and they're cool. You know, it's like a movie. Movies have a first act, a second act, and a third act. There are beats to stories that I think go back all the way to Buffalo paintings on the cave walls. Like stories have rhythms and beats and there's nothing wrong with knowing what they are and, and using them to an advantage, right? My songs tend to be stranger, dreamlike snapshots lyrically. They don't really flow A to B. They're very like Dylan-esque, Mr. Tambourine-esque. They're not as good as that, but they come from that world. And it's just, it's fun. I don't know what some of the songs are about. The Lunar Satan shit was just like fun. It was like just imagining writing a soundtrack for the movie Event Horizon. It was like, what's playing in the spaceship that goes to hell and comes back? Uh, that's fun. Maybe I like to imagine Lunar Satan's like headlining the planet or whatever that they went to. So anyway, it's just fun. I'm not real precious about that material. I don't go play it live. I don't have a band. I don't even know how to play most of it because I write it and record it immediately. And, and then I'll have my friends play on it and I'll produce it out and I'll get it mixed and stuff. But I've never really played them other than the kind of the day that they were born. So we, we work in the same way. Yeah, so funny. exactly. So 
they're fun to put out. Like I do feel like it's important for me to document those songs because I mean, honestly, I have a thousand more. Like I could stop writing songs now and put out, you know, fifteen more albums. So I actually kind of have done that. I've actually kind of slowed down my writing a lot. I think I'm just going to find the ten to twenty that deserve to be born in the real world and just get them done. You know. Which a lot of, I tend to demo out a lot of my stuff. A lot of my stuff is like 60% of the way through. So it's just a matter of like putting real drums on it, maybe replacing some of the guitars, re-singing it. But I love it. And and um, I've never really had a lot of struggle writing stuff. I tell people this all the time that are trying to write. It doesn't have to be your best song. Just write it. Like you, you can write through it pretty quick. Just if it's like you're really not feeling it, I guess ultimately you can just stop and go about your day and do something else, I guess. I think it's more interesting to just write through it. Just write the crappy song. Like, write the turd. And then what's there to be afraid of? It's done. Or if you really think it's special, but you just are not in a place to like finish it and you really think it's like something good, all right, then move on and you're fine. It's no big deal. But I think uh, the best songs come fast. And if you're if it's a turd, it's unlikely to change into a piece of gold. You know what I mean? It's really, really unlikely to quit being a turd. So just have fun and polish it. You know, that's when I start getting the guitars out. You know, like my really precious songs are really more like piano and acoustic. And I'm really trying to carve out the melody and make sure it's like resonant and powerful. But if it's kind of turning into a turd, that's when you can just get the guitars out and crank them and turn it into some sort of punk rock dream. You know what I mean? You, and then sometimes that works and you're like, wow, this is actually cooler than I thought. It's not this precious little thing. It's just a song. That's sort of yeah. my spiritual setting point with that. <laughs> so <laughs> I agree with you. I, we work similarly. That's so funny. But can you talk briefly about the differences between recording, producing, mixing, and mastering to somebody who's not familiar with that and is interested in working on music what are the differences oh man okay well when you're recording music you're literally just recording the instruments onto software so an engineer in a recording process is the guy that understands all the gear okay we're doing an acoustic guitar vocal session he knows which microphones to use that are best set up for that he knows how to set up the microphones in a way to avoid phasing from the microphones to avoid bleed an engineer is the guy that's sort of the scientist and the engineer is usually the one recording. So when I'm making a demo in my house and I'm setting up the mics, I'm doing all the recording and engineering. Producing a record can look like a lot of things, but essentially what a producer does is, is you're the papa bear. You're in charge. So a band like Metallica will come in and a guy like uh, Greg Fiddleman will go, all right, well, play me your new songs. And they'll say, okay, we have, these, we have these 20 new songs. A producer role could be, okay, well, here are your 10 best ones, but eight of those 10 need to be tightened up. This one needs a better intro. This one needs a lyric change. They'll gather the material and put a plan together. Like when I did Morgan's record, I had all the songs, but none of them had like solo sections or bridges. It was just verse chorus. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, cool. Well, here's where we need to do a double chorus. Here's where we need a solo. Here are the chords that need to go under the solo that are different than the verse, but harmonically make sense. And here's how we need to get out of the song. Here's what, and then, and she was cool with all that. So I basically drew the map. She wrote the songs. She did the real work, the work that matters. I made the roadmap 
And then she wasn't even in the studio when the band was there. So the drummer's in there, pedal steel player's in there, bass player's in there, guy on keys. They're all in the main room. I'm sitting in the control room. I made the chord charts. I, you know, for almost each song on the record, I was like, hey, this is what it needs to be like. And I would reference like a Cat Power song or like a Neil Young song and just to get everyone vibed. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. Uh, Sam, who was our pedal player, I'm like, Sam, the solo section, that's you. Do something like Daniel and Wah. Don't do Eddie Van Halen. Do something like pretty long notes. Don, who's our keys player, you're going to be on organ on this one. But once you're done with the organ, I want you to do a pass on piano too. So producer's just organizing it. So then we would burn the song down. Producer's got to be the guy going, all right, the drummer on the bridge, instead of going to the ride, I want you to stay on the hat, but open the hat. Bass, I want you to do eighth notes in the bridge. Uh, Don, everything on the organ was beautiful. You go ahead and switch to piano. Sam on the steel, everything you do is pretty. I want another shot at the solo. And then we run it a second time and everyone makes those adjustments. And then two hours later, you're done with that song and you're having lunch and then you're trying to get two or three more before the day's over. But it's a big job producing. And some producers are musicians who can play all the instruments themselves. Some musicians, some producers are not like Rick Rubin, like Jimmy Iovine. There are these guys that just understand music and melody and hooks. And if you get a great band in a room, you can do whatever you want. And so mixing, all right, so you get everything onto tape or onto the program or whatever. And then a mixer is someone who understands sonically where everything should go. And so using EQ, you can carve out space. So, you know, a kick drum and a bass guitar are occupying the same frequency. And if you just have them both hitting at the same time, it can be muddy and rub, but you can EQ those two things to work together. And a mixer knows how to do all that. That's kind of beyond me. Mixers put in compression, EQ, reverb, and they're spacing and panning everything where it goes. So a snare and a bass guitar are going to be right up the middle. But the hi-hat's going to be slightly to the left. You know, you're going to have guitar one, kind of like loading reload. You got guitar one way over here, guitar two way over here on the right. And if they were both up the center, it'd be weird. But they're spread, you know. So mixer does all that. A mastering engineer takes the final mix and basically levels out the compression so that all the highs come down, all the lows come up. And so dynamically, it makes sense. And a, a mastering engineer will also, you know, the 10 songs that you recorded are all different kinds of songs. One's up fast, one's slow, one's this kind of vocal, one's got a big solo. And he just makes sure that the whole record experience is smooth. And basically, it's a very, it, they, this is a kiss, it's a touch. It doesn't just yeah. make it louder. It uh, it smooths out everything and gives a uniformity to the recording so that it's a pleasant listening experience. Yes. And those are all the stages.
I know you always talked about the interview that John Lennon did where the interviewer asked him to answer rapid fire responses to particular songs. Oh, yeah. So now I'm going to do that for you. Oh, boy. <laughs> Hell yeah. So I know you talked about, you know, when you do a song, you're done with it, but you still might hold some sort of connection to it in some way or have a particular reference. So I'm just going to throw on a few songs for you. You have rapid fire answers. So Albatross. Oh, man. Probably the best song I've ever written. Ooh, <laughs> Dream Eater. Oh, dream Eater. <laughs> a fun experiment. Uh, really just an excuse to play guitar, loud guitar chords. Nice. <laughs> chains. Oh, I love Chains. Piano ballad that's very strange. There's a really cool bridge where the chords change a lot, and I didn't know what I was doing. All those chords are on a piano. And I remember I was in a songwriting group with people and a girl wrote about that song. She was like, I really like the song, but I think it sh she basically critiqued it and said that it should do these different things, which I thought was super rude. And uh, I never wrote back to her. But I, I that whenever I change a thing about Chains, I think one of the cooler songs I've done. And there's a Bukowski reference in there. So it says, uh, it talks about there's a bluebird in my heart. That's mm. from a Bukowski poem called A Bluebird in My Heart. But I like that one. That's uh, That was a sleeper. <laughs> Hack the Planet. For having fun with the idea of the movie Hackers. That song's about having a panic attack. I have panic attacks on planes. Well, I used to. I used to have panic attacks on planes. And I didn't know what they were because I'd never had them in my life. I started getting them about six, seven years ago. And I, you know, if you had a panic attack, you understand. You think you're dying. It's really horrible. You're not panicky. You're not like anxious. You just suddenly feel like your body's shutting down. At least that's how mine are. I feel like I'm going to puke and have diarrhea and I, I lose my motor skills and I feel overheated and I, I just feel like I'm dying. It's I really thought I was dying the first time I had one. And uh, I get them on planes because I get hot and uh, I figured out that for me, the combo was caffeine and heat. So now I'm an aisle sitter. Like I have to be able to get out and get to a bathroom like just to throw water on my face. And I always have water to throw. I, I've dumped a whole bottle of water on my head before to stave off a panic attack. So the song Hack the Planet is about having a panic attack on a plane. Lie for love. Oh, man. Pretty good song. I remember Avi Vinegar. That was his first week in the song game. I got him in the song game that I was in with Bob. And that week I turned in that song and he wrote a nice email about that. And he was like, oh, wow. He didn't know that I was a songwriter, you know. Man, I like that one a lot. The idea that you'd rather believe a lie about something than hear the truth. And uh, especially in, in matters of love. Just lie to me. Like Johnny Lang said all those years ago, just lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me I'm young and beautiful and that you love me. That's fine. It doesn't matter if it's true. Just say that. That's what that song is. <laughs> Going supernova. I wrote that actually before we were pregnant. That's an older song. Uh, space rock. I'd have to look at the lyrics too, but uh, that was just an excuse to rock too. A lot of the Going Super Supernova album was just COVID times, written a bunch of self-serious Ryan Adams wannabe songs and just wanting to rock. <laughs> One last shot. That's a song about growing up on MTV and then the entire second verse is, uh, is lifted from Prince's Seven. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first lyric is, uh, 
I remember watching MTV, staying up late and hoping to see Big Empty or TLC chasing waterfalls for STP. Mm-hmm. My whole life, like an open road ahead of me before true love taught me what I now know that good things come and good things go. It's the song about innocence, but the second verse is all seven and we'll watch them fall. If they stand in the way of love, we'll smoke them all. It's the chorus of seven, which I'm sure is a copyright infringement, but I'm sure he doesn't mind. <laughs> he'll, he'll come down and be like, oh, <laughs> can I a, get uh, exactly. here? <laughs> where's, where's the 27 cents you owe me from that? But it's a love it's a love letter to being a kid and so much of my me being a kid what was nice about it was MTV and Prince. <laughs> and finally Four Ghosts. That song is about it's about a couple that has an affair and it's you don't realize that when you when that happens it doesn't just disrupt your two selfish lives. It disrupts other people's lives too and in this case both of these people that had an affair were also married. So they're selfish, they're fucked up, but it also destroyed their partner's lives. And so ideally, if a relationship has run its course, you know, you end the relationship with dignity before you move on. But what happens is you you cause this fissure and you destroy yourselves, but it also destroys those other two people. So that's who the four ghosts are. The whole first verse is about being in a house that's full of empty rooms and uh, that used to be full of furniture and life and paintings and art on the walls and how all the windows and doors are locked, but the, they, you know, they used to be yours. Those used to be your rooms. And now they're just, it's just a house full of ghosts now. Uh, amazing. So do you have any final thoughts for our episode and <laughs> how can people reach you if they want to connect? I've probably talked enough. Everyone's probably tired of me by now no 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 i disagree i disagree um, oh boy i'm on all the socials but i don't post much but yeah clint wells and uh, metal up your podcast of course it's on instagram and twitter i have a tour with morgan wade and we're gonna be we're doing an acoustic tour this spring all over america and then we're doing three months with alanis morissette this summer probably coming to a city near you with joan jett also so they're calling it the uh, the Three Moons Tour. It's got this cool, um, you know, female power, kind of witchy, you know, the the three sister moons taking their badass music to the world. It's it's a very cool tour. I'm really stoked to be on it. Big Alanis Morissette fan and uh, big fan of her band members. Really a great band. And so I don't know much about Joan. I hope to get to know her and her team. But yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Or I'm at home watching scary movies reading Raymond Carver, and uh, dreading the end of being a dad. Master! Master! All right, there you have it, folks. Thank you to my buddy Jamila and her podcast, Music and We. All the links to check that out are down below. Appreciate you guys getting on that ride with me and learning a little bit about my world. Uh, I've got some cool guests coming up. next. The next few weeks will be normal Metallica Metal Up Your Podcast programming. Excited to hunker down in the Load Reload era this year. Excited about those box sets. Uh, listen, if you have the means and this box set thing is the thing that, you know, something that you might be interested in, try to try to make sure you get a hold of them. I mean, you know, every day I see people that uh, that are trying to hunt down some of these out of print box sets. And it's just a bummer because when they're out, they're fairly affordable, you know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks. You know, those Beatles mono, that Beatles mono box set from 2014 I remember seeing it in stores for 250 bucks. And I remember at the time being like, that's a lot, you know, and it was, it is. 
But now that thing's like $1,800. And, you know, if you're reading all the muckety-muck audio file stuff, it doesn't like they're going to repress those anytime soon. So make a plan this year to get these box sets. Real excited to dive in. If you're coming out to shows to see me play out in the world somewhere, definitely let me know. Come say hi. And, uh, you know, leave a review if you can. Patreon's still up there running. Uh, Whatever you can do to support the show. And if not, that's okay, too. I appreciate all you tuning in. I hope you're all well. Hope you take care of yourselves. And God damn it, take care of your families. I'll see you next week. Peace. <laughs> if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs> <laughs>